And Father, we open our hands. We ask that you would breathe on us. We ask that you would form us, shape us, mold us in the image of Christ. Lord, we pray that this region would have a fresh move of the Spirit. We pray that this region would come to see the beauty of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to be ambassadors for Christ. Teach us to carry the gospel day in and day out. Teach us, Lord, to live all of our lives with eternity in perspective, with the gospel in view, unto the glory of Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. And every saint said, Amen. Well, we started our series in Acts pursuing the, the concept, the idea that the early church really embraced a different worldview than the worldview that we've been brought up in. We've acknowledged that in the West, um, we carry a anti-supernatural, materialistic worldview that's led us in a way to not pursue, at best, it's led us to not pursue the Spirit's at work, uh, the Spirit's ministry. At worst, it's caused us to totally deny the Spirit's ministry altogether. We said at the outset of this series that if the West is to recover, we must cry out for the Holy Spirit. If the church in the West is to begin to gain ground again, we have got to have the power of God's Spirit in our midst. We need to lean on the leadership of the Spirit, not on our own intellect or the intellect of any man in an ivory tower at an Ivy League school. We need to lean on the, le the leadership of the Spirit. And we need to stir up our faith to expect that God is present able and willing to move. That's how the early church lived. We remember that the great prophet A.W. Tozer said that if the Holy Spirit were to withdraw from the church today, 95% of what the church does would continue as if nothing happened. And he said, if the Holy Spirit were to withdraw from the early church, 95% of what they did would have stopped immediately. Remembering again that we believe the Scripture is infallible, inspired, God-breathed. And we believe that what the Scripture teaches is that the Trinity is not Father, Son, and Holy Bible, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that what the Scripture teaches is that Jesus said it would be better for us when He goes because then He would send the Holy Spirit, the Helper. We believe that we should live in the better, the presence of the Holy Spirit who helps us, comforts us, convicts us. We are not an orphan church. He would not leave us as orphans. But He would send to us the third person of the Trinity. Do we really know Him? Do we really long for Him? Or is the church in the West too intellectual for that? Western church has largely forgotten the Spirit or limited the Spirit's work, confined it to the laws of nature, our materialistic worldview, or limited the Spirit to our weak faith and modern thinking. Now, we've talked about this before, but I'm in a talkative mood, so here we go. Uh, and we have some new folks in the room, so I just want to lay these principles down because they're pretty important to us as a house. It was Hume, David Hume, the philosopher in the Enlightenment period, who in many ways led the West down this road. He argued against miracles. He wrote essentially a treaty called Against Miracles during the Enlightenment period. And his 
his arguments weren't unique to him, but it was Hume that made these arguments uh, wildly popular. Hume said first, miracles don't happen because miracles don't happen. Miracles don't happen because we know that the laws of nature confine, they, they align the world in such a way that miracles can't happen. And then he said that we know that miracles don't happen because no one has witnessed miracles. If anyone has witnessed miracles, then they are not a reliable witness. Because we know that miracles don't happen. Literally the entire argument. It's, it's actually, um, and forgive me because I'm going to show my cards here for a minute. It's actually a demonic strategy. It's a brilliant, stupid strategy. Okay, it's brilliantly stupid. It's, it's circular reasoning that just keeps saying, we know that miracles don't exist because there are no witnesses. If there is a witness, they must be lying because we know that miracles don't exist. And it just goes round and round. It's a demonic strategy that actually undercuts the work of the Spirit. And when the Spirit begins to display the glory of Jesus through healing the sick or through raising the dead, which the Spirit still does today, or opening blind eyes, we, we, we revert to Hume's logic. And it's not, it's not smart, okay? It's not smart. It's anti-scientific. To keep dismissing evidence based on circular reasoning. I want to show my cards just for a minute here. It's what the left's doing in court today. They're saying there is no evidence of fraud because we know that there's no evidence. And if anyone says they're evidence, they're wrong because we know that there's no evidence. It's anti-Christian. The Christian worldview is a worldview based on truth that says show us all of the evidence. Okay? We build our worldview on truth. But what we do nonstop is anytime we are told of a miracle, we revert to Hume and we just slide right back into circular thinking. And we say, look how intelligent we are. And we're not intelligent at all. It's anti-scientific. It's anti-intellectual. It's circular. Now, Craig Keener, um, he went after this idea in a two-volume work. Craig Keener, who is one of the most meticulous thinkers of our day. He's an incredibly meticulous, thorough thinker. He wrote a four-volume work on a commentary on Acts. And as he's writing his commentary on Acts, he begins a footnote on this idea that, that miracles don't exist. The footnote turned into something like a thousand pages of two-volume works um, called Miracles, in which he's assaulting Hume's concept of, um, the, of that, that miracles don't exist. Um, what, what Keener showed was that, number one, there's wild evidence that miracles still exist. Keener showed that in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa, there are not just testimonies of the sick being healed, but like a wild plethora of testimonies of the sick being healed. And what, what Keener pointed out, and, and we should take note of, is that the church in Asia and the church in Africa and the church in Latin America is thriving and growing as God is moving supernaturally. And the church in Europe and in, in the United States is screaming, God doesn't do that anymore. All the while, we are dying quickly. We are closing more church doors than ever in American history. While we scream, we're too intellectual for the moving of the Spirit. And mock regions where God is pouring out His Spirit and, and the church is rapidly growing. There are more missionaries coming from Latin America today than coming out of the United States. While the Spirit moves. And what Keener showed was that 
on multiple occasions that throughout history, there have been documented healings, healings with evidence. Um, what Keener showed was that we have documented cases of miracles where, uh, we, where we have x-rays of, say, um, and he, docu- again, documents this thoroughly, with physicians' notes, x-rays, a back, thoroughly crippled, man receives prayer, x-ray, back, straight, man walks upright, doctor signature, nothing happened here other than prayer. We have, we have documented account, account. That, that, is, that is scientific to look at the evidence and draw conclusions based on the evidence. It's not scientific to keep trying to uphold your materialistic worldview, the worldview of a skeptic. I don't know why I'm so mad about that, but I am. The, in, the, in the Middle East today, there are thousands, maybe that's, a, maybe that's dramatic, at least hundreds of Muslims who are coming to Christianity because they have visions, encounters with the risen Jesus. He's still doing it. He's still doing it. And Keener pointed out that, that if you surveyed families, even in America, if we just passed the microphone around today and I just let each family, and I just said, have, has, have there ever been a miracle that's taken place in your family? He said that, that statistically, every family in the room would have a story of an angelic vision of a demon being cast out. Every family in the room would have a story of a divine, supernatural miracle and healing. Every family has testimonies of the Spirit still at work today. How idiotic is it that we all walk around pretending like it doesn't happen? It's idiotic. It is totally anti-intellectual. Now, I've tried to show you that the fathers of our modern church movement, we, we want to talk about John Wesley, who birthed the Wesleyan movement, who birthed obviously the Methodist churches, but many of the Pentecostal charismatic churches, holiness churches, all find their founding in John Wesley. When John Wesley preached, this is documented. When John Wesley preached, he would say, do not climb in the trees, because if the Spirit comes, you will get knocked down. Men like Edwards, men like Spurgeon, who would say that as they preached, they would all of a sudden know information that they should not have known. And they would call out a person by name, maybe give their birthday, and then begin to preach directly to that person with information that they did not have prior to the pulpit. We call that a word of knowledge. We call that the Holy Spirit speaking. Men like that, great intellectual men. One of my favorite stories, Leonard Ravenhill shares, and it's a direct account from, uh, from a, one of the founders of the Salvation Army who was in the room. Now, here's this scenario. Um, I believe it was Booth, William Booth, who was preaching. He's preaching, laboring in this, this kind of crusade event, and there's many on the back rows. This is what they say, would say would happen during this age. I was telling Haley this recently because she loves to hear my stories. She's just fascinated with everything I have to say. <laughs> Haley's my wife, if you didn't know. She doesn't, she doesn't care at all. There... Um, there was a period um, where, during the Salvation Army's upbringing, during Whitfield, there was a, a phenomenon that happened where unbelievers would sit on the back rows of churches, and there was these printed hymnals, you know, these little paper hymnals, and they would sit on the back row, and they would nervously just tear the, the hymnal up. Just, and when, they, when the preacher would get done and everyone was out the church, they would find the back rows t- t- torn up with hymnals, where these people, in, under conviction, nervous, would just t- tear. And uh, one night, um, Booth is preaching, 
And he's giving a, uh, an invitation. Come receive Jesus. Come to the altar. Come bow before Jesus. And the men are in the back row just tearing, but no one moves. And so he turns around to the, to the other ministers on the stage and he says, pray, pray. He makes it, you know, if they're not coming, it's your fault back there. You're not praying enough. And so he says, pray. And then he gives the, he gives the invitation again and no one comes. And he says to the back again, pray, pray. And nothing happens until all of a sudden, this is, again, this is a, a, a documented eyewitness account. Or multiple, all of a sudden, men begin to float, literally float from the, from the pew. They float over the rows, and they're dropped right in the altar. As if God just picked them up, and lays them in the altar. This, these are the kind of things that our, our nation was founded upon. The Holy Spirit moving in our midst. We are not, hear me, we are not sacrificing our intellect to believe the Spirit to move in the way that the Scriptures say that He moves. That is not a sacrifice of intellect. That is called being consistent. We are sacrificing David Hume, though, which is something that I am very eager to do. I believe, and I'm speaking mildly prophetic here, meaning that I think I know what I'm talking about from the Spirit. Um, Mildly prophetic here. I believe God is raising up in our nation. There is an undergirding movement, something that's taking place that hasn't taken place in generations. I don't think that you could see it if you looked with your mind's eye, but I believe there are young men and young women, old men and old women, who are leaving Their tradition of being a word-only person, a dry word-only person. And they are coming to a conviction that the word teaches that the spirit is still at work today. And they are coming to a place where they fully believe the word of God and fully believe that the word of God teaches that they should have the power of the spirit in their midst. I believe that there are people who were raised in charismatic and Pentecostal settings where they were a spirit-only church and not a word church. Where they witnessed miracles, but they could not articulate the plain doctrines of the faith. I believe those young men and old men are beginning to slide back to a center ground where they're saying, I have seen God move, but now I am learning the doctrines of who God is. I believe there is a word in spirit church going to be released on this nation and we are going to see a move of the spirit like we have never seen before. I believe that. I think it's happening underneath our noses. And so as a church, we are committed to being a Bible church. Somebody say, we are a Bible church. Say it. Half of you just lied. And you don't lie in church. I'm kidding. We're going to be a Bible church that believes the Bible teaches that the Spirit still moves. Now, let's read Acts. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and he began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. 
Acts 1.8. Jesus said that the disciples were to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Imagine an onion. Jerusalem being where they are, Judea being the region of where they are, Samaria being the next region upper, and then to the ends of the earth. In obedience to that commission given by Messiah, they began in Jerusalem. Here we find Peter and John living in Jerusalem among the Jews, going to the temple to pray. It's interesting to point out, one commentator notes that Peter and John both have um, brothers amongst the disciples, amongst the twelve. Peter's brother was Simon, Andrew, um, and um, John's brother was James. So they both have brothers amongst the twelve, yet Peter and John began to commune together. Some suggest that maybe Peter and John led a section of the church in Jerusalem together. Who knows? The point is that Peter and John began to hang out. Peter being the loud one and John being the one Jesus loves. Jesus has favorites, you know. The the bad news for you and I is that I'm pretty sure it's Seth. Okay, I'm pretty sure (laughs) Pastor Seth is the favored one. The ninth hour, it's 3, 3 p.m. It's the final sacrifice of the day. They begin to head up to the temple to pray. This is a time where the temple would have been really um, heavily populated. Because, again, it's the last time of worship for the day. And so the, the temple and the outer temple is heavily populated. Likely why the man is being brought to the temple at this hour. Because if you're begging for money, the more people come in, the better shot you got at getting a little, little cash. The man was lame from birth, the scripture tells us. The the Greek literally says the man was lame from his mother's womb. Imagine the ankles and the feet, the calves of a man who has never walked in the entirety of his life. He's carried to the gate called beautiful because he can't walk. That's a little logic for you. Again, expecting a crowd, hoping that some of the pious, religious Jewish men would be willing to put their righteousness on display as they dropped him a little cash. Peter and John, together, they walk towards the temple. You're always going up to the temple because the temple's on a mount. Walking up towards the temple. And they see a man, again, whose feet, ankles, Calves are deformed. He's never walked a day in his life. Laying at the gate called Beautiful. And they, Peter, again, the spokesman, you know, says, look at us. Peter's a little assertive. And you wonder what the man thought in this moment. Look at us. Maybe he thought he's going to be rebuked. Maybe he thought he was going to be belittled. Surely he had been belittled for time and time and time again in his life. Scripture tells us that he thought that they were going to give him some alms, some money. Maybe he thought they were going to give him a lot of money. Because they say, look at us. Maybe he thought, this is the cash cow. Today is the day. Look at us, they say. They demanded his full attention. And Peter says, I have no silver or gold. Silver or gold, I have not. And that phrase is worth pondering for a moment. I have no silver or gold dismantles the entire modern prosperity gospel movement. The apostles were not rich men, at least not rich with financial well-being. The apostles have no money to give. 
a modern message that says you should come to Jesus because you could have more stuff is not consistent with what Peter and John had to say. Now, their needs were taken care of. We know that from Acts chapter 2. The church, they were taking care of one another. Peter and John were fed and clothed. But they weren't particularly wealthy, and that didn't seem to be a problem for them. We don't have money. We don't have silver or gold. But what I do have, I give to you. What does he have? And do you have it? We don't have cash, but we have something better than any banker can offer. We don't have material goods, but we have the river of God flowing within our bellies. Their ministry is not one of feeding the poor alone. They have fed the poor. The scripture tells us that. But their ministry is one of bringing the kingdom of God in power. What they have is the power of the Holy Ghost. What they have is the Redeemer. What they have is the living one within their ribcage. What they have is the anointing of the Spirit on their lives. What they have is an assurance that God is with them. What they have is the confidence that the God who is with them is not confined to the laws of nature, nor crippled by your crippling. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Jesus would have simply said, get up. Take your bed and go home. Be healed. Jesus didn't need to say, in Jesus' name. But Peter clarifies. He heals under the authority of Jesus. He is an extension, not of his own power, not of his own anointing. He is not operating now out of his own great gifting, out of his own great personality. He's not a, he's not a, he's not a magician. He says, what I give you, I am now offering you as an extension of Jesus himself. In the name of Jesus, in the authority of Jesus. In Jesus' name. Now, many promote in our day a plethora of modes of healing or, or um, strategies of healing or um, kind of here's four steps that you can do to, to pray for the sick. And most of those are fine and they're all well and good. And, and those kind of steps oftentimes give us confidence when it comes to praying for the sick. But the large emphasis that we need to focus on is that when we pray for the sick, it should be in the name of Jesus as an extension of his person, connected to the concept of his kingdom coming, as a means of hallowing his name. When the sick are healed in Jesus' name, it hallows his name. It makes his name holy. It declares the glory of his name. We are not to heal the sick out of a, out of a need to promote self. And that's where the charismatic movement got turned sideways. When we began to worship men and women with healing gifts and chase them from town to town because we wanted to see what they could do. And they began to rise above accountability. We do not heal as a sake of promoting ourselves. If we move in power, it is in Jesus' name for Jesus' glory. It is about him and for him. It is connected to his kingdom work. It is a fulfillment of the prophetic word. It is 
an extension of his compassion and his mercy. Now you could say, Caleb, but that ministry was for the apostles alone. That's what many in the cessationist camp would say, in the West would say. Oh, we believe that the apostles healed the sick, but only the apostles did that. Well, Stephen was not an apostle. He was a deacon. He served tables. And the scripture said that Stephen performed great signs and wonders. And that Stephen debated the Pharisees, the great intellectuals, and they could not stand under his great logic. They become so frustrated with a man who was not an apostle that he's the first one killed. The first one stoned was not an apostle. It was a servant. Because the power and the wisdom that he walked in could not be stood against. Is it only for the apostles? No. Otherwise, why would Paul say that there's a gift of healing when he lists the the spiritual gifts? Use your brains. Don't allow this modern materialistic worldview to seep into your doctrine and theology. Don't allow this modern worldview to trump the scriptural worldview or the plain teaching of scripture. Was it for Peter alone? No, it was for Stephen. And it was for the Corinthian church. Now, Peter and John are causing a scene, something they're getting really good at. They say, get up, rise up. Others begin to stop and stare. Maybe the educated are saying, you're cruel, you're being cruel to this crippled man. But in faith, they tell a man who has never stood a day in his life, get up. Peter grabs and John, they grab his arms and they jerk him to his feet. And in a moment, his feet and his ankles, the scriptures say, are made strong. Who made them strong? Was it Peter and John by God? No. It was the presence of the Holy Spirit. At work in their midst, as powerful as ever, the omnipotent one, willing to heal, willing to restore. So up the man stands, scripture says. He walks into the temple and he begins to leap, begins to jump, frolic around. Now, there are multiple things happening here. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 through 6 says this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The lame man who sits at this gate for years, for the entirety of his life, he now steps into the temple And begins to frolic like a deer. Some of y'all need to learn how to frolic. Because of his disability, he's not granted entrance into the temple before. Because of his crippling, there's a stigma. There's a social stigma. There's a stigma that, that, that does not allow him to enter the temple. He is not just a crippled man. He is an outcast. And so when he stands and steps into the temple, it's the first time he's ever walked in the temple. And he doesn't come just to casually stroll around the rest. He celebrates as if God is actually worth celebrating. For the first time he's received. God heals his body, restores his soul, and sets his feet on solid ground to worship in spirit and truth. An hour of redemption. The kingdom has come. Jesus has been proclaimed. The prophecy has been fulfilled. 
and a broken man has been redeemed. John the Baptist says, sends his disciples to Jesus and they ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? And Jesus says, go and tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, the mute speak, the deaf hear. The power of the Spirit, scripturally speaking, has always authenticated the proclamation of the gospel. In the West, in an anti-supernatural worldview and materialism, we see the only way of doing evangelism is arguing. And that is a, that is a means of evangelism. Paul certainly argues. Um, we see the, the, the primary method of evangelism as making a case for the gospel and trying to help people think rightly. And again, they're, they're, that, that's appropriate. But, but scripturally speaking, Peter here is going to do evangelism by putting on display the power of the Spirit, which authenticates his message. And now the scripture says that the entire crowd, all the people saw him, they recognized him as the lame man, and in awe, they began to wonder. In awe, they began to wonder. The apostles walk with the Spirit in faith, They offer a lame man healing. He's restored physically, emotionally, spiritually. The kingdom has come. The prophecy has been fulfilled. And now the crowd begins to stand in awe and in wonder. They're struck with awe. Peter and John don't have to cause a scene or produce a strategy or come up with some great outreach event to get the attention of the crowd. They now have the attention of the crowd. And we'll get into next week, but imagine what they preached when they had the intention of the crowd. I'll tell you what they didn't preach. I'm just getting ahead of myself here. What they didn't preach was signs and wonders and prophecy and dreams. When we live in the, in the spirit-only camp, the only thing we know how to preach is signs and wonders and prophecies and dreams. But when we begin to live in the spirit and the word camp, then we recognize moments when the Spirit has opened up the door for us to proclaim Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. Why do we need to be people of faith? Why do we need to be people who abandon the materialistic, anti-supernatural worldview, which is not based on logic, but is based on circular reasoning, because I believe the Spirit still wants to shake things up. And we've been taught to deny Anything the Spirit does, we immediately go to some kind of placebo effect or some kind of extreme scenario of how a man with a crippled back, with an x-ray of a crippled back, and now he has a straight back and someone prayed for them between. We're thinking about maybe he had some kind of crazy vitamin. Maybe there was a vitamin in his Cheez-Its. That's your best hypothesis, vitamin in the Cheez-Its? Maybe it was the prayer and the power of the Spirit. And maybe the Spirit did the work to fulfill the prophecy, bring the kingdom, restore the person, and to create an opportunity to preach the gospel. And maybe in our anti-supernatural worldview, we're actually denying the ministry of the Spirit. Now again, I'm not telling you to throw away your brain. I know that there are charlatans. I know it. I believe it. Um, But I am telling you to throw away Hume and to find your worldview in the Scriptures And to ask yourself, what the early church experienced in their Christian life, is that what I experience? And if your answer is no, 
I want to ask you to lay on the ground in prayer and in faith ask for more of the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come. Do you believe that? Or do you believe Hume? Choose today who you will serve. I suggest we, we throw our rotten tomatoes at Hume today. So if you go ahead and stand to your feet, I'm going to get ready to close here. Seth, worship team, if you'll come. Altar ministry team, if you guys want to get in place. As our, as our team prayed this morning, our altar team, our intercessors prayed this morning, there, there was a vision that came forth about some needing to be baptized in faith, needing to have faith restored in their life. And what I want to do, um, as we, we'll close like, you know, like we usually close, we'll worship a little, ask the spirit to come. But what I want to do is I want those of you who felt this word at all prick you. Maybe as I spoke, you thought, ah, that I, I have lived the life of a skeptic. I've allowed skepticism to have its way in my thinking. Maybe for a moment you thought, oh, maybe I have dismissed the work of the Spirit out of um, a worldview that our universities taught us. Maybe, maybe you recognize that you are not, at least in, in the way that you view the world, faith does not reign in your thinking. If that's the case, as the worship team begins to do something to make me look a little more spiritual here. <laughs> Hallelujah. If that's the case, um, we're going to open up the altars. And I want to ask you with no shame, man, no embarrassment. I struggle with this on a daily basis. I have got to get rid of the skepticism in my thinking. On a, I, I mean this. Every single day I pray, God, make me a man of faith. Make me a man who believes your word. Lord, I do not want to be contained by an anti-supernatural worldview. I don't want what I, the way that I perceive the gospel and the gospel going forth. I don't want it to be restricted by my Western thinking. God, make me a man of faith. I pray that almost every day, if not every day. So, so feel no shame. But as I pray, I want to ask you to come. And we're going to ask that God would give us faith. The scripture teaches that faith is a, is a gift, one of the gifts of the Spirit. We're going to ask God to bathe us in faith. So Jesus, right now, in your holy name, Lord, we repent of, of skepticism. Lord, we recognize that there are times where we need to be skeptical. There, 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 there are times where we need to have discernment, Lord. We've, we freely confess that. But on the other hand, God, we have in many cases denied your very presence on the altar of our Western thinking. God, rid us of it today in Jesus' name. Rid us of that today in Jesus' name. Lord, and breathe on us. Release faith in this house. Faith to see the sick healed. Faith to preach the gospel and to actually believe the Spirit is drawing folks to the truth. Faith to see the kingdom come. Oh Lord, maybe you, maybe you have sickness today and you need healing. I want to ask you to come to the altar. Church, let's begin to worship. Give us faith. 
stay here for a minute and the worship team will continue to lead us in worship but let's pray and after i conclude praying you'll be officially dismissed lord we ask in jesus name that this word would grip our hearts lord make us a spirit and word people a people who see in the scriptures a truth that's expressed in our lives holy spirit we love you we need you be near god as we draw near draw near to us, Father. So in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Everybody say amen. Amen. Next steps is at 1030 in the guest lounge. You are blessed. Again, pray. Stay as long as you need to stay.